This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Waiki Wong, thank you so much for joining us on Port Over. Your new novel is Joan is Okay. Yes. I loved this book. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I loved chemistry. I finished Joan and my first thought was, oh, Joan. <laughs> we need to talk about Joan. And, you know, I know you've been told that some people read this book in one sitting and some people read it in longer periods. And the first time I read it, someone at your publisher handed me a copy and said, this is the one you need to read this. And I said, yes, absolutely. I read it in a single sitting, mm, mm. but then I went back and because I have the luxury sometimes of rereading, I was able to sit with it a little longer. And there is a lot to talk about in this 207 page book, this tiny, right. tiny little book. I can't write long books. I can't, mm-hmm. I, have, I have trouble. I think it's my, you know, being long-winded, right? You're trying to edit just like Joan, sort of editing yourself down to this like single page or 207 pages. But it's also very funny in unexpected ways. We need to talk about Joan's family. I mean, mm-hmm. she's grieving She's grieving her father, who's died mm-hmm. unexpectedly. Mm-hmm. Her mom is hysterical. <laughs> her older brother, Fong, is very successful, lives in yeah. Greenwich, Connecticut, yeah. has all the right cars, all the right accoutrements, has a great wife, has three kids that he's trying to set up for great, great yeah. things. Yeah. And Joan, well, Joan really likes her life as a doctor. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. the structure. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about Joan because you and I know Joan's okay, but there are going to be some <laughs> other folks who think Joan is probably not okay. You know, this is the thing that when I read the first page, the title came to me. I usually have a lot of trouble with titles, but this title was very easy. And I knew once I wrote that title that that would be the ultimate question, right? Is she, is she not? And that's the tension that is throughout the story. Joan is a product of a lot of the circumstances that created her, right? She is the second child. She's not, you know, the first child. The first child has a lot of different types of pressures. She's the second child. Her parents sort of came to America, lived here, had her, she and Fong set up here, and then they kind of went back. It's sort of like a drop-off service. And she's never left America. You know, if anything, she's 100% American, right? More probably American in terms than her brother, because she was actually born here. The first in her family to be born here, never left, went to school here, pretty much as American as you can get. And I think when reading this, a lot of readers will say, you know, I recognize these characters in terms of some of the stereotypes that I've, I kind of lean into when I think about Asian people, right? Asian doctors, you know, Asian finance people, hedge fund people. But the whole point of writing this character was to show that Joan is totally beyond that stereotype, right? There's certain commonalities of what she does and, you know, the way that she handles the situation. But I wanted to get into the mind of the reader who would look at this character and just dismiss her, you know, and just say she's boring. She's a flat character. She's quote unquote autistic or whatever, putting those sort of projections onto Joan, just like every character in this book does to Joan. Every character tells Joan they need her to do something. So she's more of this type of person. And I think readers will do that too. And that, that's sort of the tension I'm, I'm really trying to kind of play with in the story. Joan, even though she's born in the States, her mm-hmm. family life is really peripatetic. And she has very sort of specific ideas of what family is. And mm-hmm. it's not what you would consider sort of American. There's not a lot of physical contact. There's not a lot of demonstrative, I love you kind of stuff. I mean, her parents are Chinese immigrants. Yeah are certain patterns of behavior that come with that because they have their culture. And part of that culture, and I love this, is the yelling at the kids because you love them thing. Yeah. (laughs) 
it's sort of like, I care so much about you that what you do really upsets me, you know, because I want you to be a better person than this. Like the, the anger of sort of wanting your child to be successful or to be a good person or whatever, right? It makes you care so much. And I find that now that I teach, I sort of feel like the students that I care the most about, I'm actually the hardest off because you want them to do better. So you want them to be able to stand up for themselves when like things don't go as they want them to, even though they're very talented people. And you see this dynamic with Joan and her mom and her mom and dad moved back to Shanghai Right after the kids were launched. They dropped her off at Harvard as an undergrad and said, okay, you're good, kid. You're good. We're, mom and dad are going to go now, which is not a story you often hear, but it does happen. It's actually pretty common, I guess, in my circles or my uh-huh. community that maybe not when they're freshmen in college, but I think the parents are banking on Fong being there. Like you have an older brother here. He can take care of you. Should you really need help. But a lot of people, you know, parents are kind of going back or they want to settle someplace else or they sort of feel like, as I say in the book, their job as this like parental figure is done. Now you you are fully formed adult. So go take care of that. And I like what you said about this makes you rethink the American family. I think I wrote this with that intentionality of questioning what is the American nuclear family? Because so much of American media is as long as we have each other, doesn't matter what happens, we're going to be fine. I don't always think that's true. Circumstances can really tear families apart. But I, you know, I'm not going to write succession, right? I'm not going <laughs> to write that kind of dysfunction. So I really want to think about what the nuclear family is, because I think the American nuclear family, especially the maybe not ones without sort of this Asian kind of culture, is this idea that distance matters a great deal. You have to be close to them. You have to be in the same zip code or close state-wise or something like that versus separating by oceans or countries or, or you know, that kind of story. And when Fong does step in mm-hmm. and acts, tries to act as a surrogate parent to Joan, yeah, yeah. she's in her 30s. She's yeah. a doctor. She's <laughs> a doctor in a medical ICU. Right. He's talking about ECMO machines and she knows things her brother doesn't know. And he's just saying, why aren't you married and why don't you have children? And this is something that came up in chemistry. I mean, chemistry opens with your unnamed narrator mm-hmm. saying, well, my dude just asked me to marry him and I don't know what to do with that. And right. and right. here we go again. It's like this idea of family has got to be grounded in marriage. It's got to be grounded in having children. You can't just be satisfied if you want to do this one thing that leaves out this other piece. And Joan is quite comfortable with yeah. the way she lives. She's okay. She's just like, I'm fine. Thanks. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. But her brother, and this isn't just being the oldest son in a Chinese American family. This is this is his idea of success. He's saying, hey, listen, mom and dad came here. They had a rough go of it because they were he's the like, He's like plotting like an Excel yeah. graph, you know? Yeah. Like, trying to figure that out. And I think that's the character, right? The sense yep. of my parents did this. So that's point one. Right. We're here. That's point two. And then our kids are going to have to get here uh-huh. if we're doing, you know, best fit line because you need three points, right? So I think he's thinking about that mm-hmm. in sort of like a very quantifiable way because that's sort of what he knows, right? He's mm-hmm. a numbers person. And, you know, with Joan, I think some of his sort of anxieties about Joan is Joan is kind of content with what she has and he's not. He just wants more. And I wouldn't necessarily say it's like greed. It's just this sort of emptiness he had from childhood of, you know, maybe being left behind, maybe not necessarily having the picturesque family he envisioned, right? And trying to fill that hole from sort of his upbringing. 
Well, and at the dinner table with his sons and his yeah. wife and Joan and his mother, he'll ask his sons very specific questions. What are yeah. three things you did today? What are three things you're going to do? Not what did you do today? What are you going to do tomorrow? What are you doing? He's very specific. The children are playing tennis because he feels like the children should play tennis. And because he plays tennis too, well, they're going to be able to play doubles soon. Yeah. I don't know. One of the kids may not like to, I, I, they might take up golf. Who knows? I mean, yeah. they, they may not right. have a sport at all, but he really does have this plan because he sees them mm-hmm. in a way where he wants to set them up for a very sort of conventional idea of success. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that links back to, you know, he says kind of maybe midway through the book or earlier that he, he's like, Joan, you can be weird later. Like maybe your kids' kids can be weird or whatever, whatever his definition of weird is. Why can't you just commit to normalcy now so that they can be weird later? So that's his like perpetual confusion that you just sort of need to put in the work now to do this. And then later your, your family will be set up to do whatever they want. Joan put in the work to be a doctor. Yes. And that's a whole different skill set. That's mm-hmm. a different kind of training. She has got to be clinical in a way that most human beings don't. Right. And a little bit detached, you mm-hmm. know, because mm-hmm. you see so much death. You can't always, when someone dies, cry for an hour and think about their family and et cetera. There has to be some sort of, okay, we need to move on to the next thing that we need to do. So in that way, I think the, the siblings sort of show a, a similarity of this like idea of having some sort of structure within their life. And Thong is more interested in the structure of wealth and capital. He's trying to build capital. He's trying to build kind of the sense of like Americanness or whatever he thinks that is. And Joan just loves this structure of hospital life of this bizarre hierarchy that she's in, um, this sort of like military nature of how things work and how it's pretty much just based on work in a certain way. And that structure really fulfills her. It is through that training. She has coworkers, but if you're in the hospital, you probably want Joan as your doctor, maybe not some of her coworkers who are sort of, you know, having existential crises or something like that, right? Like you don't want your ICU doctor to have a meltdown while they're intubating you. And Joan, when her dad dies, goes to Shanghai for the weekend. She's like, well, I'm going to go. And I don't know about you, but I've done Taipei in a weekend because sometimes (laughs) that's just what you have to do. And her colleagues are amazed that they didn't know she spoke Chinese. They make all of these assumptions. They didn't know her family was in Shanghai. They thought she was born in China. It's kind of like the strange, oh, we thought you were born in China, but we didn't know you spoke Chinese. Like this cognitive dissonance, right? And I mean, I've been asked a lot where I've been born. Not that that ever really matters in a conversation, right? It's such a weird question, but sort of like commenting on language fluency or commenting on bilingualness or, or whatnot. So there's a lot of things that they kind of assume of her because they just, they've just never asked. They just never thought about it. Joan and I share a deep distaste of the movie Breakfast at Tiffany's. <laughs> I had to get that in because. Oh, <laughs> thank you. That, I mean, you know, I think when I first saw it, I, I was really uncomfortable. Like that paragraph is sort of my deep feeling. You learn, oh, this is such a beloved movie, blah, 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 blah. And then you watch it and you're like, there's something really deeply disturbing about like half this stuff. Yeah. Mickey Rooney in yellow faces, yeah. not anything the world ever needed, will not be anything yeah. the world ever needs. But I bring that up, not just because I really dislike that movie intensely, but also honestly, because that's a novelty for Joan. Mm-hmm. Before it was school and mm-hmm. studying, and then it becomes her job because she really does see her job as her home. Mm-hmm. And it's the first time that she's felt really grounded in her own life. And yet here's the rest of the world saying to her, are you sure you're okay? You sure you got this? You sure you're okay? 
You sure you don't want to watch eight million things? I mean, I could have made it through life without ever seeing Mickey Rooney in yellow face. Yeah. I would have been perfectly content. I would have been like, absolutely like perfectly every, content. You know, being able to cite Seinfeld or Friends or like these sort of music references or book references and did you do this and this and this? Baseball, oh my God, I don't know how many times I've had to read books in college as part of the canon and there's always baseball or some version of, you know, the sports, that that kind of stuff. I'm not against it. It is just the conditioning that I start to realize. And for Joan, who has kind of been in school all of her life, but in a very specific kind of school, has sort of avoided a lot of this stuff in that she's just like, well, there's science, there's math, there's biology, there's all of this stuff. And I'm just not going to care about the other cultural things that maybe, you know, people would think it would be really weird that I didn't know or I didn't know how to reference because that's not part of my job. But Joan's given the television. Yes, by by his neighbor. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We need to talk about Mark. Oh, yes. The neighbor. You need to talk about this neighbor who's seemingly very well-intentioned and keeps yes. telling Joan she's one of a kind. She's yeah. totally unique. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I have feelings about Mark. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I set up this character because I wanted her to start off isolated. So she's on this floor. There's no one across the hall. And she kind of lives this isolated life anyway, going to the hospital, coming back to the hospital. And Mark, I just thought if, if I was going to pull a character... The idea of this New Yorker neighbor on television, I feel like oftentimes they're overly friendly in real life. Maybe that's not so. But then you you do get sometimes these people who, because you're living there all the time, you see them all the time and you sort of become friendly with them. And Mark is just an extreme version of this, that I wanted to have this character who... And I know people who do this. They explore different boroughs of New York to kind of find which borough they really like. They're always kind of moving apartments. They have a lot of stuff. They're hoarders. They like to give a lot of stuff. They like to seem very generous. But they also like to seem very knowledgeable because of experiences that they've had. And in that way, Mark Mark doesn't know anything about medicine, but he's not required to, right? But in the same way, he won't extend that courtesy to Joan. Joan doesn't need to know anything about certain books that Mark reads or movies or whatever. But Mark almost demands that of Joan as like a neighbor, you need to have a housewarming or whatnot. Or as a neighbor, you know, you need to kind of know your other neighbors or you need to be friendly with your doorman or there's this kind of manners. It's sort of, he's trying to teach her manners and in his world, what that would be. But that's the piece. I mean, his world, he is used to pushing forward all the time. Yes, And her older brother has a certain tinge of this. And anyone with a sibling knows that the last thing you really want to hear is your older sibling telling you how to live. That is the last thing. (laughs) You would probably put up with it with your parents more than you put up with your sibling saying, this is what you need to do. Right. I say this as the older sister. (laughs) Have you given advice that was not as received? (laughs) Oh, yes. And I am happy to report I no longer do that. (laughs) I was much younger when I did that too. I will say I was much, much younger. But, you know, at the same time though, here are these men in Joan's world. There's the director at the hospital. There's her brother. There's this neighbor. Dude needs to learn how to just chill for a minute and let people live their lives. And he doesn't know how to give her the space to be her. Right. He's trying to slot her into his expectations of what a neighbor should be, what a woman should be, what certainly an Asian American woman should be. Yeah. And yet she's kind of like, why is all of this happening? What is going on? Mm-hmm. 
And she's got a colleague, Reese, at the hospital too, who's right. like, well, I'm going to put myself first. He takes a leave, which yeah. that's terrific. Yay guy, understanding yeah. that you need to take care of yourself. That's great. But it is never not about Reese. It is yeah. never not about Mark. It is never not about Funk. Yeah. And that is something that men mm-hmm. oftentimes- Across, I think a lot of races do, right? It's just mm-hmm. this very general sense of, I know- know what's best or I know the plan, right? Because the system on the grand scheme of things has sort of been designed for someone like me to hear my opinions. And you must want to know what I want to say, right? Because women are oftentimes in the role of the listener. You have to listen. There's a sense of niceness, being polite. And also sometimes Joan just doesn't even really want to respond because it takes energy out of her. (laughs) And she thinks if I have to respond, I have to think about it. I might as well just stand here and listen, right? Or not listen. And I think that her sitting there, sometimes not responding, gives Reese and Mark, sometimes even Fong, this sense of, well, you must be receiving what I'm saying because you're not telling me to stop. So it's sort of like you're asking for forgiveness before permission, right? You're just going to go for it and see if it's received, whether it's not. And then if you make a mistake, if you make a faux pas, you're going to apologize for it. That's what real people do, you know? (laughs) Totally. And Joan's personality is separate from her grief. I mean, she is deeply, deeply grieving her dad. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think she knows how deep, right? Because she, you know, she's thinking, it feels no different in many ways, right? Because her father's abroad, but she can't help thinking about all these memories that she's had of him and things that she just remembers. And I think she doesn't know how deep it is because she's like, I have to put this in a box and then I do the next box, right? It is sort of this like boundless grief I mean, that's why her mom comes, because I think her mom is, in a way, kind of worried about Joan, because Joan doesn't say anything to her in in that way. She doesn't talk about it. And neither does the mother, but they're both grieving, and I think they just need each other. They need the company. Grief isn't depression. Depression isn't grief. I mean, there are going to be people who, and this happened with your first novel, Chemistry, where people looked at the narrator, and because of the way you designed the character... Right. She has a very flat affect. She's very focused on science. I mean, in chemistry, only the boyfriend, Eric, who asked her to marry him, has a name. Everyone else is defined. Their their name as a character is what they do, which is a very sort of clinical scientific way of approaching things and, and categorizing things. And it makes perfect sense in the context of the novel and the character. But a lot of reviewers didn't understand what you were doing because they were like, is this girl depressed? Is right. she autistic? What yeah. is going on? Like, what is wrong with this girl? Right. And actually, it's a different way of approaching the world. And it isn't necessarily categorizable. And the same thing happens with Joan. Her life may not look like yours, but she's okay with it. Right. And she's content with it until mm-hmm. other people start to disrupt it and sort of poke. And the more they poke, the more like, well, this is not matching what I'm thinking. And they're going to poke some more. And then they decide there's got to be something wrong with you. Because if I were living your life, I would not be happy. Mm-hmm. So how can you be happy? Right. Coming back to this idea of normalcy, that there is this core definition of normalcy and Americanness or whatnot, right? Even though you're a doctor, even though blah, 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 you, you do all of these things, you should be well-read. You should be well-cultured. you know, cultured. You should want a family. You should want all of these things. Doing one thing really well does not get you off the hook for any of these other things. And the thing with Joan is that she's not disturbing other people. She's not doing this to other people. She just has this done to her. Feeling that you're different in so many different ways, but then not realizing it, right? She has she doesn't realize it really until people keep telling her you're different, you're different. And the more times you are told you're different, you just you internalize that message, you know, and sometimes you just start to worry. 
And I think, too, that her sister-in-law adds to it because her sister-in-law has a story we've heard. Right. Student comes to the U.S., works really hard, doesn't go home. In this case, Tammy finds Fang. They get married. They have a great time. They have a great life. And she does not go on to get the PhD that her Chinese parents expect. Right. She is perfectly happy living her life in Greenwich with her sons and her husband, mm-hmm. doing what her parents expect. And of course, they're disappointed and they show their disappointment. They show up for things, but they stay for a week and they leave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Tammy is taking some of that pressure and dropping it on Jim. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Fong has this great idea for this family. Like he wants mm-hmm. this one big idea for the family, but they have such different stories, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Fung left China when he was young. So he's sort of one of these kids who kind of follow the parents later. Tammy has immigrated much later. She's like a fully formed adult when she immigrates, right? She has this idea of comfortability and sort of, you know, she'll put in the time, but she wants to be comfortable in her adult life in the States. And Joan is a child of immigrants. She, she was born here, right? So like they have no unifying immigration story or, or anything that can kind of bring these three together. And yet Fong really wants them on the same page. You know, Tammy's thinking, if I had your kind of whatever, call it pedigree, call it sort of the sense of not having had to move over, I would be doing things so much different. I would have, you know, not been quote unquote delayed becoming whatever I'm become. You're not making use of your time, right? The sense of what would I have if I had your set of circumstances and not really putting themselves in Joan's circumstance or thinking about it. There's kind of this strange sort of comparison within this family because they have such different stories. She and Fong are very much aligned in terms of this idea of, okay, so we we do want a family. We want kind of a stable family. You know, we're good for each other. They don't have broken marriage they're going to be fine right but now you need to be fine because we need to have cousins because kids have cousins right like you you know the sense of the checkbox right and if they don't have cousins what what are they going to do (laughs) and also grandma doesn't want to stay in greenwich connecticut full-time grandma has a life grandma has stuff she would like to do she wants to make sure her kid's okay yeah there's a very funny moment joan is borrowing clothes from tammy oh yes reason and they don't really fit yeah And then mom shows up and mom starts handing her her own clothes. And she's like, I was dressed exactly like my mother. Her mother just says, yeah, yeah. All women become their mothers. All women. And it's just this very matter of fact, very sweet moment. Yeah. And Joan is beginning to understand. And it is because of a shared turtleneck and a shared pair of pants. But it gets Joan to a different place in a way that all of these lectures that she's getting from everyone else, even her doorman, I mean, her doorman is very nice, but even he's trying to give her life advice. Everyone is doing it. And her mother just simply hands her a turtleneck. Yeah. And they just sit there. They just have to sit there. You know, sometimes it's just the company, right? You Mm -hmm. don't need to say anything because what's there really to say? And then they just sort of need to be holed out in this guest bedroom together in this big house while something else is happening, right? There's a lot of humor in this book. There's a lot of dark humor. But who are some of the writers who've influenced you over time? I know you studied with Amy Hempel at one point. I think without her, I I wouldn't have gone into writing. I was actually terrified of taking a fiction workshop because, I don't know, everyone reads your stuff and then, you know, they talk like you're not there. So sometimes people can be overly aggressive with that. That was kind of accelerated during the MFA program of just like, you know, really kind of critiquing. But she was sort of my first introduction to workshop and she was just so kind and generous. And I think everyone knows that when you're in college, what you're writing is so nascent that there's really no point in 
trying to get this ready for the New Yorker or something like that. It's just figuring out what you're good at, figuring out what comes naturally to you. Humor came naturally to me and she encouraged it. And I think that sort of what helped for this book. You know, a few years ago, the story, it was the convenience store woman came out and it was amazing. I read that and I just cannot believe how this writer created this singular character so unapologetically and had kind of the balls to sort of write this amazing story. And so it was sort of like that, that sort of this absurdism that I was kind of tapping into. And that's why some of the characters in here are in some ways, they have these traits exaggerated. One of the books that, you know, in high school that I read and obviously has always stuck with me is The Stranger, that this character, Death of the Mother, somehow he ends up in jail by the end of the story, right? Because he's not able to show his grief in the correct way. And I think in some ways I read that and I connected that to the Asian American identity so well that obviously Kunmu would never have thought of that. But the sense of not being able to express something so well, not being able to show your feelings and then in a way being penalized for it. I think in many ways that's part of the Asian American identity that we get kind of put in these boxes and then we get penalized for not being expressive enough or blah, 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 blah. And it's so stupid. Inscrutable is overrated. And I think a lot of us don't show up with that particular factory preset. Mm -hmm. I certainly didn't get it. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't get it. That's the thing. I mean, we're talking about universal feelings. I mean, grief doesn't matter who you are. Grief is something that you have experienced. You haven't experienced. You will experience it at some point if you have not yet. It will happen. You know, the struggling with feelings and how you express yourself publicly. These are all things that are not solely the provenance of Asian America. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. yet, you know, this idea that you're a robot, you're not a robot, you're other, you're not other, yeah, you're yeah. an outsider, this constant, where are you from? Where are you from? Where are you from? When in fact, you're just from here. Yeah. And I totally agree with you. I think there are a lot of people who have trouble expressing themselves, but somehow the robot image is always placed on Asian faces. You just sort of sit there and it's like, oh, you're not being very expressive. You know, oh, that's why we don't hire Asian actresses because they're not expressive. No, whatever. I actually have no idea why that has stuck, but it is something growing up that I just kept hearing. And that is just something that, you know, you're kind of conditioned to that you need to have personality, right? Or you need to kind of be able to sort of win them over. And humor is a coping mechanism, right? Like if I appear too deadpan without humor, oh, they'll they'll actually think that I'm saying this for real without a sense of sarcasm behind it or, or, you know, dare I say wit or something, you know, that there is intentionality behind that sentence. So misunderstanding, misinterpreting sort of how I'm writing a story happens a lot, especially with people of color who are are writing. Was there anything that surprised you about Joan Mm. as you were writing? You know, with chemistry, it was much more straightforward because the first novel, you've kind of been carrying it for many years. With Joan, she was incredibly stubborn to handle <laughs> because she just would kind of argue back in my head. I, got, I don't, I don't want to do this. Why am I doing this? Why is this happening to me? I just want to go to work, right? I don't want to sit here while you write about me. Right? This sense of frustration that I had with her because I'm trying to get to know her, right? Obviously, as I'm writing, but she's just in my head thinking, well, I just want to go to the hospital. You know, that's like the thing that she's constantly saying. <laughs> as I'm trying to write about her. So in some ways, getting her to change environments, right? Because I could see her so well at the hospital. I just know what she's like at the hospital because that's her home. Getting her out of that space and into Greenwich or a cab, right? Or getting her in the car with her mother or on a plane 
you know, in China at a, at a restaurant, getting her in the hall, watching, you know, Mark break down boxes inefficiently, right? Getting her in these settings and really making her uncomfortable. I think she was kind of mad at me, which is why she was a little difficult at some points to clear up what she needed to do. Of course, Joan was stubborn. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. <laughs> makes complete, complete sense. Yes. Who have you been reading lately? Peter Ho Davis wrote this great book called The Art of the Revision. And I think after I had this like, not necessarily terrible, but a very intense teaching semester, I just wanted to read a good teacher's notes on good writing (laughs) because I was so kind of disheartened by, you know, the in-person semester, the craziness of whatever. And then it was a beautiful book, very short, but kind of how he approaches revision, how how that works and things like that. I read, finally, As I Lay Dying, it's hard for me to actually get into Wagner sometimes. I know it's embarrassing. I shouldn't say this because he's one of the greats or whatnot in classics. But <laughs> but as I lay down, the comedy of that really got to me. Like building this coffin. She's not even dead yet. They're going to carry her across. This adventure totally gone wrong. And I had a good time with that. Now I'm, you know, in the middle of the Empire of Pain, the nonfiction about the opioid crisis, because sometimes I really like reading the nonfiction that's very immersive. And I, I know a good deal about, you know, narcotics because, right, you learn that in epidemiology and also like when you're pre-med, you learn about all these drugs and pharma companies. And I'm just sort of like in shock as I'm going through that book. It's sort of like this train wreck that you can't put down. <laughs> I think I like stories in which there is this sense of tension, but ultimately it's almost this like tragedy comedy that's happening. Families falling apart, but in this like amazingly spectacular, but maybe terrifying way. Yeah, Empire of Pain is a really important book. Yeah. It's a really, really important book. It's giant, but I put it down to sleep. I put it down to go to <laughs> But I remember sort of sitting with it and not wanting to leave it, even though it's not the easiest book to read in some parts because of what happens to the people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's so much cynical behavior on the part of the people who have power. Joan really... She's a little bit a recipient mm-hmm. of power structures. She's got people telling her what to do and how to do it. So it kind of doesn't surprise me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think being pre-med and then, you know, doing kind of sort of like a health-oriented grad school, I was under this constant impression that the medical system was like fine-tuned or whatever, right? This medical system was, you know, very structured. It's a meritocracy. It's a hierarchy. You know, you put in what you get out, kind of this thing, you know, that feeds into this Asian idea of the model minority and all Asian people are doctors, et cetera. And it's such a lie, but the more you know about the system and sort of Joan is in this like blissfully, I just don't care about the negative stuff, right? Because this system allows me to do what I want to do. So I'm going to do it regardless of the kind of horribleness that sometimes this system is capable of. And I think that's also the part of pain reading through. You're, you're just so well aware that the system is broken. And doctors say that all the time, system's broken, system's broken. But most of them are not going to fix it because they do benefit in some ways from that system, the system of prestige, the system of, oh my God, you're a doctor, you know, and so there's like the system is broken, but if we change it, what's going to happen to me, right? And that's kind of Joan's idea is like, it might be broken. It might be, you know, all of these things. You're totally right. But where do I go if this system is not here? She knows. I mean, she's, I don't want to say that Joan is stuck. I mean, she's not. She has made some conscious choices and she's okay with those conscious choices, but she does change over the course of this very slim book. Right, right, right. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think she becomes a little bit more Mm -hmm. (laughs) self-aware. 
And things start to just come up, especially memories of her father and her family. It starts to come up a little bit more unprompted, right? Before she almost had to say, well, I'm going to think about this now. And then if I'm not at the hospital, I'm not thinking about this. I'm not at home. I'm not thinking about this. There starts to be a little bit more intersectionality of spheres of her life. And I think she's still at that point of figuring it out, obviously. But she's not self-loathing in any way. I never wanted to make her self-loathing. I never wanted to make her feel bad about herself, even though everyone else is trying to tell her to feel bad about herself. It's just a, a little bit of getting to know her father in her mind. What do you want readers to know about Joan? Mm. Well, I mean, in short, I want her to know that she's a person. I don't know how many times a character like this is always the flat character and is always either the comic character, the, the cliche character, or just like the, the addition, the friend or something like that. There are a lot of people like Joe, right? And they just never get the attention because oftentimes they're seen as too flawed, right? Or people won't understand this person, right? They don't follow this dominant culture idea. So why, why should we write about her? Or why should we put her in this story? The sense of confusing the reader, right? And I want to clarify that this all good characters have flaws, right? Um, there's something obviously quite endearing about her, that she is a human being. I, I can't believe I have to say that, but sometimes, you know, you find yourself having to say, this character is a person. Person. You know, I'm a person. <laughs> I'm not just this A, B, and C that you try to conveniently put me into a box for. What's next for you? Well, probably more stories. I think I'm a little bit burned out from Joan because this book was, you know, Hajin told me the second book is always hard to write. And I thought, no, it's going to be fine. It was told, it's totally true. I mean, <laughs> he's totally right, obviously. Um, but I was thinking, oh, it's going to be fine. This book took a lot of time, but rewriting, rewriting, you know, it is 200 something pages. I think I wrote like 500 pages of crap that I just like threw away. And then because she's an ICU doctor, obviously I have to think about ways that, you know, it's believable that she's in the hospital doing the things that she's doing. So that required a lot of rewriting, given the current circumstance that we're in. So figuring out how the pieces are fitting together for Joan took so much time that I just don't think I can think about another book for a while. So I think stories, maybe even shorter. Um, I like novellas, you know, flash, things of that nature. I'm sort of reading shorter, shorter novels. So I'm sort of thinking about kind of like, can I tell a more efficient story? And then maybe even going a little bit more into horror. I don't know, more into sort of the ridiculous aspect of this, of stories like this um, and seeing if I can do that on, on a shorter scale. Louise Erdrich has a very cool list of perfect short novels at the back of the novel, The Sentence, because The Sentence, which just came yeah. out in November, it's about a bookseller. Yes. And it's a really good list. It's a really good I'm gonna list. I'm going to look at this now. I'm going to... I had a bunch of them already, but I did actually, I ordered a bunch more that I didn't have, but I'm like, well, Louise Erdrich says they're perfect short novels. So I should look at this. true. I was in the bookstore yesterday. I was flipping through Lemon. I think it's a crime novel, right? But it's so tight. And I was kind of absorbed in the first 20 pages that I'm going to try to find it in my bookstore. But something of that nature that how can you do something a little bit shorter, tighter? Because novels, you, you do need to write a little bit more, you know, write a little bit more to kind of like give this world more texture. And I, wonder if in a collection, I would have more freedom to kind of try different forms. Well, we're going to find out, right? Yeah, we will. <laughs> I might never write again. Joan might have knocked me over and I can't, can't do it again. I can see her being stubborn. I don't see her knocking you out of the game. <laughs> <laughs> just her and her big stick just coming and taking me out of my writer's chair. Waiki Wong, thank you so much for joining us. The new novel is Joan is Okay. People should not forget about chemistry, which is out in paperback as well. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. 
The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.